Good morning, how are you doing? Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew Pack. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, we're working our way through 1 John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to get up and grab one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. Uh, we will be in 1 John starting in uh, chapter 2 and verse 15 today. I'll pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Our Father, I pray today that you would glorify your Son. You would glorify yourself. That you would move in our hearts. That as we open your word and your holy communication to us, that you would light us up for a worship and a passion for who you are and what you have done in history. What you have done uh, uh, through time and in our own lives to bring us here today for those of us who know you, that we would know the power of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. We would know the power of the forgiveness of our sins and the power of the life you have given us in Christ. I pray that the reality of the gospel, that you are holy, we are not, and you have saved us by your cross, Jesus, for your glory and our joy, would sing in our hearts today. That the reality of who you are would permeate not just this meeting as your church comes together for your glory, but our lives as we are released on your mission to this city for your namesake, Jesus. Holy Spirit, as I approach the text, I pray you would lead and guide me. I ask for your help and your guidance. And I pray for us together as we hear your word, Lord, just the things that are just of me, that they would be forgotten but we would stand in the confidence knowing that the word of the Lord abides. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May we walk in a bold confidence of that reality. Your word outlives us on earth. Uh, Your gospel outlives us. Your gospel is more powerful than anything we can present. And so I just pray today, Lord, that we would both Uh, be in awe and want to live our lives for your glory, but also that we would be in the awe of the forgiveness of our sins and the sins we've committed against you and your justice and your love in that, Lord Jesus. God, we love you, and we pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're in uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Uh, John gives us a warning, and that's right for John to do. Uh, John has been known to give us warnings Uh, He's writing this somewhere between 90 and 95 A.D. Uh, He is an old man at this point in time. He's lived a long and faithful life, knowing and loving Jesus, knew Jesus personally, and is writing this letter to a church uh, that they may be firm in the reality of who they are because of Jesus and what that means for the rest of their life. Uh, He gives us this warning, do not love the world. And really the subtext of that warning is do not love the world, not love God. And as we know the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we know who we were before we met him, and we know the redemption that he has worked in our lives, not because of anything we have done, but everything he has done by his death, burial, and resurrection to forgive us for our sins and to give us life, and that life is now, and that life is eternal, and that life keeps on going, and that he's ultimately doing all these things to put the world back the way it's supposed to be, that yes, there is much in Jesus to love. And as we'll see how John understands the world, the world are the things, everything but God. That that God is the one who's at the center of our lives because of this reality. And that we have much to live and enjoy and and celebrate because of what Jesus has done. Uh, It's my job, of course. I'm the one standing here. I have the microphone on, right? Fortunately, I don't have one of those face mics. I have one of these mics, and so you don't see it as much. But my job every week is to to come to God's Word and and to think about it. And as a preacher, I I think about um, how uh, our church is loving one another in the Word and discipling one another in the Word. And and I think about what it means for us to, you know, what's happening in the Bible studies and and what's happening with God's Word as people are leading people through um, Bible studies and and what's happening in your life personally. Um, You know, as a pastor, the church is on my mind. Uh, how the Word of God is working out into your life is on my mind. You, you might not be thinking about how the Word is working out into my life or someone else's life, but hopefully you're at least thinking about how it's working out in your life. And I would invite you to consider how, how is it and how is it that you can help other people follow Jesus more uh, yourself personally. Uh, and as, as I come to a text like this, I, I was struck by this, this idea as we look at this warning. Uh, um, and that is that there are t- sort of two main 
camps on what the Bible is. Okay. Uh, and on one poll, we have that the Bible is uh, divinely sourced, written by God, verbal plenary inspiration. It is the word of God. We can say with confidence, these are the words of God. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, we have sort of a, a thing that says, well, this is just a, an artifact. This is just something that people produced. Um, it may even be a nice thing that people produced, but, but often even in our own city, it's not the view that's taken. If this is something that people produced, it's something that can actually be quite disregarded. Uh, and, and as I was thinking through the, the complexity of that, um, what's interesting to me is that those who want to argue that this is just something um, from people, uh, it's far, it's distant, and it doesn't have anything to do with your life. And maybe we pull out the King James Version in Old English, and if you read the King James, it's totally fine. But, but it is more outdated English, right? It's 1600s, 1700s English, right? And you pull it out and say, look, there's language about shekels and about uh, uh, grinding wheat and uh, pastures this and, and sheep herds this. And look how distant and, distant and far this is from your modern industrial life. And if you if you proof text it, you can make it seem like this thing is distant and far and doesn't really have anything to do with your life. And on the other hand, when we actually believe what this is, this is from God, this is the word of God, uh, there are times where the things that it says almost become redundant. And here's what I mean by that. You look at the history of humanity as laid out in the scriptures. And human beings, I was just reading numbers yesterday, Human beings are selfish and greedy and doubt God and say things like, well, did God really say that? Maybe this other religion's awesome. Maybe we should do that. And you look at numbers, and when you actually take away the fact that they're talking about grinding wheat, which, of course, you know, some of us in Seattle grind wheat and own goats, and, you know, it's not that far, even here in urban Seattle, thanks to the modern uh, uh, urban farm revolution, uh, at least what's cool this week. You know, we'll see what next week looks like, but I digress. When you actually look at what the Bible's saying, it's not far. And God keeps calling people back to the same thing. Know me, love me, have life, be forgiven for your sins, live life eternal. Uh, there's more to life than this. And I think even uh, the thing that I've always felt uh, in my own generation and sort of probably not, this probably goes vastly beyond uh, my own age group. Uh, I, I think you can see it in the 60s and with the hippies and you can see it uh, you know, in the grunge movement. In the night. You can see it all over the place. There's a general sense that there is more to life than this. That's the very thing that John is saying. Yes, there is more to life than this. His name is Jesus Christ. And by this, I mean the rat race. I mean, I mean the things of our, our society. People are going to say, isn't there more than just making money and having more friends on Facebook? Isn't there more to being liked or having what's cool or not cool or rebelling against what was cool last week? You know, uh, you know it's so cool to have a mustache this week. If you have a mustache, I'm not picking on you. So I'm not going to have a mustache next week. Like We're fickle as a society, and we kind of stop and wonder... Isn't there more to life than that rat race? John's going to say, of course there is. And you see it in Ecclesiastes. You know, written you know, almost a thousand years before the Gospels. Isn't there more to life than this? And you see it even as far back in Genesis. These people questioning and asking these same kinds of questions and looking around and realizing there's more. So we're going to look at three things today from John in this warning. What does he mean, and what is this warning? Do not love the world, and why is that important to this conversation? And really, the subtext of do not love the world is love God. It's love God. Uh, number two, we're actually, John's going to give us a bit of a case study, if you will, on what it is to love the world. He's going to describe for us what it is to love the world, and finally, he's going to show us what it is to live a life loving God. We've got three verses and he's going to do a lot in those three verses. They're, they're good verses. Um, so here we are, verse 15, chapter 2. I always do this backwards. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 15. It should be on the screen. He says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Period. It's a very serious warning. That's a very serious one. We have to understand a couple of things to even understand what he's saying. What, what does he mean by world? What does he mean by love? Um, and we can do this from our Bibles, right? You read John in particular. This is the fancy word for it. It's Johannine. 
uh, the Johannine texts, that's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are letters that John wrote. And you read John's gospel, the fourth gospel. He also wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, And in it, when John talks about the world, he, he really means the systems and the things that people do and the people that live lives organized against God and who he is. This is what we do as human beings. We try and displace God from his right place in the center of the universe. People have been doing this since Genesis chapter 2. We continue to do it today, and John is warning against it. We try and move God out of where he belongs, in the center of our hearts and affections. And God is so worthy of that place. He made absolutely everything. And he made everything good. And he made human beings very good. And he made this world and built you to know him and enjoy him and love him and worship him and glorify him. And we take everything he made and do something else with it. Is what we do. It's how we, we operate. We take some other thing and we use it a way that God didn't mean for it to be used. And that is for that thing to be the center of our focus. And when John says the world and the things in the world, he means all those things that are organized against God and really in their organization trying to displace God from his right place in the center of the universe. There's a big problem that you can't actually displace God from his right place in the center of the universe. And when you do that, you actually pick a fight with God which is bad news bears. Bad news bears? Yes, bad news bears. Right? It's what we do. It's how we rebel against a holy and right God who made us to know him, enjoy him, and love him. And we say, you know what? I would rather know and enjoy and love something other than you. Something other than you. What we do with that is we say, God, you're not God. This thing's God. My job is God. Facebook is God. Twitter is God. My clothes, my success, my power is God. What people think about me is God. What I think about other people is God. These other things are God other than you. And as we do that, we worship that thing. That thing becomes the focus and object of our affection. Now, God has a solution for that problem. This is why we should love God instead of the world. He is holy, right, just, and perfect, and we have rebelled against him. Jesus Christ, God himself, because that sin and offense against God is infinite, comes and pays the price for that sin to make us right with God. And the actions that we do to try and displace him from that right place, these worldly things, these things of the world that we do, are massive. It's not just wiling out and doing wrong things. It's all the right things we do for the wrong reasons. It's everything we put in that center place, because really that idol, to use biblical language, that object of our affections, whether it's an actual pretend God or, or, or some other thing, success, money, power, uh, friendship, whatever it is that goes there in that place is the thing that we worship as God. And Jesus Christ came and paid the price and crossed the gap for us on our behalf to save us from ourselves to a life in him because we love to do that. We love to put that thing there and Jesus came to deal with that so that he could both be just because he doesn't let any evil go and also the Savior and the justifier of the one who makes us right. This is why, friends, because that is a sin against God which is, who is infinite, you can't earn his love. You can't do enough to pay him back for all the wrong you've done. Jesus Christ had to come and do that for you on your behalf for his glory and for our joy. And yet we have this thing where we still love the stuff of the world. So when it says world, I mean, this is, this is important, right? Because John is also where we get our football verse, right? What's our football verse? For God so loved, what? The world. Same word. Wait a sec. So we're talking about the same world? Is this world? The stuff uh, organized and opposed to God? Yeah. Jesus didn't just come because he picked you because you are awesome. Jesus came and died for all those things and people, including myself and yourself, who are organized against him. That's significant. That's God's love. Right? And so when he says, do not love the world, he's not talking about not loving your neighbor, right? It's contrary to what the gospel says, right? It's not, it's not contradicting. It can be confusing. You've got to stop. What John means here when he says love is he means the thing of first importance. That Jesus Christ is what is to be in that place in the center of our life, heart, and affections. That he is the one that we are to love, not the world. 
Not money, not success, not power, not whatever that you can put in that place other than God. When he says that here, he means Jesus is that thing we live. And the thing is, when Jesus is in his right place in our life, when we understand what he has done for us, what do we do for others? Our response to the gospel is to love. When I love Jesus, I love others. When I love Jesus, I love the church because you're the people of God. In fact, John's even going to say that later. That's how you know someone's a Christian. Because they love other Christians. If they don't love other Christians, they're not a Christian. Why? Because I know that you've been bought by the same blood I have. And in the weird kind of way, that makes us, maybe not weird, maybe that's the wrong word there, that makes us family. That's why we do membership, so we can know who, who's in our local expression of that family, so we can know who it's our job to help love and serve and whose job it is to help and love and serve us and help each other follow Jesus. That, that to be a member of a church is to give your life to help other people follow Jesus. It's to help other people live in the reality of what's already true of them through the cross, and that's that Jesus is their God and their Savior. Membership is helping people live that out. That's what it is to be a member of a church. Now, of course, we would say that goes beyond that, right? I'm, I'm, I think it's still your job if you're, you know, your friend or your cousin from some, you know, your friend or cousin in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Well, is it not my job to help them love and serve and follow Jesus? No, it's your job to help, love them, help them love and serve and follow Jesus too. But when we're a member of a church, we're saying, hey, this is the people that I've identified as the people who I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm focusing on loving and serving. Uh, and it's important because how can you, you know how many times the Bible says one another that we one another, one another, love one another, serve one another. How can you know who to one another if you don't know who you're supposed to one another? That's why it's also important, right? Other Christians in your local church. Now, Jesus then, this love means Jesus is the center of our affections. And John is very polemic. John um, is yes or no. He's binary. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says you can't love money. You can't serve two masters. You can't love money and God. Money and God don't get to sit at that right place in the center of your affections. Just like anything else. Jesus needs to be the center of our affections. It is our primary desire. And it's for his glory. Because when you see him in his wonder, and and when you just understand for just a second, a second what Jesus has done for you to make you alive and this be careful here right this isn't a guilt trip well you know Jesus died on the cross for me so you should really love him more you're right you're right you're right I'm a bad Christian because I don't love Jesus enough to die on that cross and so I'll try harder to love Jesus here's the problem if I have to say that to you I'm afraid you haven't understood what the cross is if your response is, you're right, you're right, right, right. He works so hard, I should really try and love him more. Yeah, we should love him more, but because we're beholding the glory and the wonder of who he is. It's not I'm a Christian, show, so I should be a nice person, I should like Jesus. It's that I beheld what he has done on my behalf to make me right with him, which makes it a free, glorious response to point to him and glorify him and say, Jesus, you are awesome. You love more than anyone ever loved. You are more glorious than any other thing to be glorified in. You are more enjoyable than any other joy to be held. And that is not because I feel guilty. It's because I see him for who he is. Because I love him. Because he's amazing. Now John is going to give us a case study. He's going to unpack for us what it is to love the world. And this is a warning he's going to have for us again, right? Verse 16, for all that is in the world. So again, the things that are organized against God and his glory and his wonder. For all that is in the world. Now he gives us this list. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride of life. So when we say flesh, this is what we mean. If you go with me, I don't have it on the screen, but if you would go with me to uh, Colossians, chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 1. So we're in Colossians, chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's you if you're a Christian. Your resurrection in Christ is inaugurated. You have life now. 
And he's going to put the whole world back the way it's supposed to be. And there's going to be a full-on resurrection just like his resurrection. Your resurrection life is inaugurated. I don't know that we often think about ourselves that way. But you need to understand that you as a Christian are sharing in the thing that Jesus has done in his resurrection. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And God raises him from the dead as an acceptance of that reality. As that reality. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning as we seek, just like Psalm 110 tells us. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Paul has the same kind of mindset here, I think. For you have died. This is the radicality of the Christian life. If you are a Christian, you have died and have been raised with Christ. You're new. You're not the things that you have done. You are who Christ has made you through his cross and his resurrection. This is the gospel. You cannot earn his love. You cannot pay him back. You cannot make yourself new. He has made you new. And this is about, well, one, where my baby starts to cry. And then two, I feel like we could just close the book and start to sing. But there's more and it's good. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Again, your life is now, your kingdom life in Jesus is now, and it's, there's this forthcoming reality that's even going to be better. That's, I mean, that's amazing. My life in Jesus, just to be experiential for a moment, my life in Jesus is so much better and grander and enjoyable, this side of my sins being forgiven and me being right, made right with God that sometimes when I'm in that moment and and actually appreciating being thankful for what Jesus has actually given me, and imagine that whatever we have now in Jesus is just just a fraction of what it's going to be like when you and I are with him in the kingdom of God fully realized forever. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. When When Christ, who is your life, appears, his eminent return then you shall also appear with him in glory. Okay, so now here here is our our life of sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which that new me gets further and further away from that old me. Um, You're new. You're made new in Christ. You're a new person. And yet we have these sort of what we might call, I don't know, family traits, uh, uh, things that we've picked up things that are part of who we were, that sometimes we don't even know our sin until God reveals them to us. It's being sanctified, it's being made new, and that's not fully realized until, of course, we appear with him in glory, but here we go. Put to death, John Owen's going to use the word mortify, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So I think John's using, or, uh, Paul's using earthly the same way John is using world here, okay? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, Passion, he means that that word has a negative connotation. Passion for good things are good. Passion for bad things are bad. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry, which we've talked about. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He is coming to judge the world in all its opposition to him. Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, came and drank the cup of wrath that you deserve for your sins. He did that for you. No one likes the idea of evil being let go. We don't. We have a problem when injustice happens. We can rest in the confidence that God is fully just. And there will be no evil swept under the rug. Whatever horrible things you read on the news this morning when you came in, if you did that, you're like, why didn't somebody do something about that? He will. He will. I think the hard part for us to grasp sometimes is that all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, we all deserve to be dealt with too. We all deserve it. The only one who didn't deserve it died on the cross for it. The only one who could, who was innocent and pure, died so you don't have to. He he drank that cup of wrath so you don't have to. But on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked. That's you. That's me. Right? You once walked when you were living in them. When that was your reality, that was your love, that was your primary peace, right? But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythic, and slave free, but Christ is all in all. You are new, and you are made new, and you are a new person, and yet we're in this process by which we take off the old self and we put on the new. And you need to see where that comes from, because Christ is all in and all, right? This isn't you making less, these are bad things, I need to stop the bad things so God will love me more. No, no, I take off the old self because I've been made new. I mortify the flesh. I war against my sin because God has set me free from my sin. It's the power of the cross in my life for my sanctification. It's not spiritual push-ups. God has not left you on your own. You are not abandoned. You are near to God. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you and sent His Spirit through His cross, through the power of His cross, because you've been made holy, to empower you. And it's a free gift of grace. If you had to earn it, if it was up to you to save yourself, to do the spiritual push-ups, you know what you get to say to God? God, you owe me my salvation. I did what you told me to do. I did the work you told me to do. And then it would be Jesus plus your spiritual push-ups. The reality is that you can't even come close to God in his holiness. That's why he and his son came down for you. And this, friends, this is freedom. This is freedom because all of a sudden now my life putting off the old self, my life being renewed uh, to, to, to strive after and love Jesus is not so that God will love me, but because he has loved me and my life is now a response to the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden my sanctification is actually worship. It's me living my life, as Paul will say in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. I'm seeking to enjoy Jesus and not the stuff of the world. It's worship. Sanctification becomes worship all of a sudden. It becomes for his glory and for his namesake and ultimately for our joy. That's huge. See how free the gospel has made us. Back with me to John. So he says these three things, right? The desires of the flesh. That's the internal struggle. That's what's inside of you as you're doing the fight, fighting the good fight to, again, I always love John, Jonathan uh, Owen's word, more, or John Owen's, not Jonathan, just John, John Owen's words, the mortification of sin, putting sin to death in our life, taking off the old stuff that doesn't belong to us anymore, putting on the new that belongs to us in Christ Jesus. We take it off because we're not that person anymore. So there's the internal struggle, but then we have the desires of the eyes. They did a great job in English. It's the exact same word, just eyes have been replaced. So I have a struggle inside where my eyes are closed and I'm by myself and uh, I'm here. We all do. But then all of a sudden, there's all this stuff in the world. Money, power, sexual morality, whatever it might be that we, that we see, right? I know I use this example a lot, but I will use it again because it's very helpful. You turn on Amazon, and all of a sudden, do something nice for yourself. We saw this in your wish list. Oh, cool. Dead Sea Scrolls, that is pretty cool. Yeah. Coffee maker, neat. Whatever. Whatever goes in my thing, right? They're trying to tempt you. They know you want it, and they say, hey, look. You weren't even thinking about it. It was on your wish list. You put that text-critical apparatus by Emmanuel Tove on your wish list three years ago, and it's buried at the bottom of the list. You didn't even think about it. You forgot that book existed. I'm speaking to myself now. You forgot that book was there. You didn't even know you needed it. Wow, that would really help with my sermon. Yeah, that's, a good, that's good stuff right there. I forgot about it. It's not bad to buy books. If it was bad to buy books, I'd be in a lot of trouble. What is bad is when we allow ourselves to sort of be enticed by the world, right? Be tempted. And it's everywhere, right? The, the keeping up with the Joneses, the sexual morality of our city, um, the need for money, all of it's just, it's just present. It's there. You just drive in your car. 
There's temptation everywhere. And that temptation is to be pulled away from those things of Christ and be pulled towards the things of the world, the things that are organized against him. Finally, he says this. So the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So on one side, we have the things you want. From the inside and from your eyes, the things you want to have. The pride of life is referring to your confidence in the things that you do have. The idolatry that's in the things that you've actually gotten. The things that you possess. You know where you're standing in your company. You're the, you're the CEO of the company. You're in charge. You got what you wanted and you're justified and right because you're the top dog. You have the big house. You have the nice car. You have all those people following you on Twitter. Everyone really, really likes you this week. Whatever it might be. There are all kinds of things we can put in that place. And, and it's the scary thing about the pride of life that these things are not all bad things that we're finding that pride in. It's that when they become our righteousness, this is why I'm right in the world. I did it. I won. I have all the stuff. Go with me, would you, to... Um, we'll be in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. I think this is one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible. And a warning, too, from Jesus, by the way. Verse 15... And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Which is, by the way, um, Ecclesiastes-type language, which we'll talk about in a second. But God said to him, Fool! By the way, when the Creator of all things calls you a fool, this is a bad day for you. That's not really subjective at that point in time. God's opinion is objective. Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The pride of life. If you want to read a warning on the pride of life, read Ecclesiastes. You want to talk about things where at first glance, if you read it, there's these mention, you know, there's stuff mentioned that are, you know, very much um, 900s BC kind of stuff. Right? Because that's when he was a king. And at the same time, he's saying the same stuff. You're going to die and someone else is going to get all your stuff. Then what was it worth to get all that stuff? And Solomon outdoes us. He built a bigger house. He has a nicer yard. He has more friends. He did more things. He built more stuff. He had more money. You know? He had more rock and roll than anybody else. And he still ends up saying things like, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. And he really calls into question the pride of life. He says, this is worthless. This is worthless. It's, it's like a vapor. It's chasing the wind. And so this is what we do. Back to John. We focus on um, the things that we want and the things that we have, and those become the center of our life and being. But John has something different for us. He says this, and this is his warning. It's like what Solomon says. It's like what Isaiah says. It's like what God says in Genesis. This is not actually new. <clears throat> Excuse me. For all that is in the world, oh, sorry, uh, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So those things are not from God, but from the world. Verse 17 and the world is passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world as we know it is passing. I think that really has two meanings. Because at the end of the day, 
when you've done that, when you've pursued the things that, that, that are going on inside and the things that, that you see and, and also the things that you have and you have confidence in that, no one in the hospice house looks back and thinks those were awesome when it's their time. No one looks back on that and says, well, yeah, that may have been satisfying 50 years ago. It is not satisfying today. And even if they do, and even if they do, their life pursuing something other than God, even if on their deathbed they continue to reject Jesus, will regret it shortly. It's passing away. It will not last. Um, Did that work? Yeah, all right. You didn't get coughed at. You're welcome. Um, okay, what do I mean by this? What do I think is happening here? Uh, if you go with me to First Peter, or pardon me, Second Peter. So we're in Second Peter in chapter 3. Second Peter, chapter 3. It should just be a couple pages over from where you're at in First John. So I'm in Second Peter. I'm in chapter 3. I'm starting in verse 3. He says this. Knowing this first... Of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Know this, church. Following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? I thought you Christians said that Jesus was coming. Where is he? Right? Where is he? It's been 2,000 years. I thought he said he was coming back. Well, let's keep reading. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, that's... All things were coming as they were from the beginning of creation. So he's looking back the pipe of the Old Testament. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heaven existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Second Peter, Peter believes Genesis. Go figure. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged. This is most assuredly referring to the flood. Genesis 6 with water and perished. By the same uh, word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years of one day. He's not slow. He's not late. He's not at a lunch appointment and forgot about the whole restoration of all things. BT dub. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. Remember this, family. We can grow very impatient with Jesus. We all can grow very impatient with Jesus. He's not slow. He's not late. He hasn't forgot about you. He is the king of all things, and he's working things out for his glory and for your joy. Period. He works all things for good, for those who love him. That's truth. And I think if you don't believe it, find someone who's lived it. That experience has been true in my life a number of times. And yet I am quick to forget what he has done, how he works, and it's first and foremost for his glory and my good and not my timetable. Because if I got things the way I wanted them, I think I would regret many things that I would have gotten if I'd gotten the things that I wanted and in fact, usually when God just gives people what they want, it's usually a judgment. Numbers. We want some meat. Egypt was awesome. We had meat. Give us some meat, God. This manna sucks. Give us some meat. The manna was awesome. It was like coriander, and it was like cakes baked with oil. And God made it just show up every morning. That's awesome. Why were they complaining? We liked like it was in Egypt. We had fish that we didn't have to pay for. Because you were slaves in Egypt. That's why you didn't have to pay for it, dude. Give us the quail. Fine, I'll give you some quail. It's going to come out your nostrils is the word that it uses. Fine, have some meat. Never mind, never mind. I'm not going to give it to you for a day. I'm going to give it to you for a month. Never mind. No, we don't want any more quail. We like the manna. The manna's great. He's teaching them who is God, right? Just saying. Moving on. Uh, but is patient toward you. Thank you, Jesus. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's kindness, Romans tells us, is meant to lead to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and the heavens will pass away uh, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works uh, that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to live or what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt, well, melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth, which righteousness dwells. Now, what's important here is this idea of the flood. What's idea here is the idea of resurrection. What's, what's important here is the idea of revelation. Sometimes you get to a text and say, what does that mean? Here's a tip especially when you're dealing with texts like these. Don't go to more confusing verses to try and uh, interpret plainer verses, but pull the plainer verses in. Romans 8 is clear. It's this world that's going to be put back the way it's supposed to be. Um, Revelation 21, it's the new heavens and the new earth, uh, and that new heavens and new earth are as God moves to restore creation as we know it. I think the key here is to understand that the word deluge, which we don't use in our normal language, but is in reference to the flood. The world was utterly changed by the flood. Wickedness was utterly wiped out. And as the flood waters receded, Noah and his family came out, and God started over. And he even made a promise that I'm not going to do it that way again. Okay? Um, so what it means by the world passing away in John, I think what he means, and what he's pointing to is this reality, that every eye shall be wiped of their tears. That in the coming future, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. That he's going to put this world back the way it's supposed to be. Isaiah uses language like the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. This world as we know it will be utterly changed. And all those things that are organized against God, along with all the things that produce them, our sin, our rebellion, will be utterly blotted out, wiped out, and God is going to settle all scores and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. So we ought not live like people who are living in the stuff that's going away. We ought to live like people who are living in the reality of the future now. We okay there? Okay. The world is passing away. So this means the people and the stuff that are organized against God. God's people, however, are living in this abides forever age to come. Right? Uh, is not from the Father, but is, oh, pardon me, 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, we'll come back to that, abides forever. You as a Christian who loves Jesus doing the will of God, have a share in the new heavens and the new earth. You have a share in the resurrection. You have a share in this world as it's put back the way it's supposed to be, and Jesus rules and reigns it from the center of everything. Now, here's where I have to let you, I have to ask you. I spent some time coughing so that I'm running out of time. There we go. I have to ask you. Let me finish this sentence. Let me explain what I'm about to say. We live in a uh, Twitter-ish kind of world where you take about half of a sentence and you roll from there. So fortunately, I have the microphone, so I get to finish what I'm saying. But please, let me finish what I'm about to say uh, because I'll show you that it's not crazy. See, now I'm setting myself up for fail, so we'll just keep going. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity, again, let me finish what I'm saying, is, is an end times but when I say end times, I don't mean that we need to go around and be like, well, you know, the USSR and Apache helicopters. Wait, the USSR is not around anymore. Who could fit in for the, for the beast? Uh, Rome, no, wait, that's going backwards. That's what somebody else thought. Um, oh, we don't use Apache helicopters anymore. We use spaceships. Maybe it was spaceships. It wasn't, sorry, scratch the helicopters. What we meant was the spaceships. Cancel, left behind two. Let's just hang on until we figure out this whole spaceship problem. I didn't see the new one. I saw the old one. So maybe there's spaceships in the new one. I don't know. Okay. Uh, but what I mean by this is that we live in inaugurated reality. We live as citizens of the kingdom through Jesus Christ. We're partakers in the resurrection of Jesus. We're partaking in, we're not fully taking, partaking in it, but we're partaking in the thing that God is ultimately doing as he restores all of the world. We're living in the preview. When John says eternal life, we always think duration. He means quality and duration. 
He means that your life now with Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, this is a fraction, this is the taste test of what our life will be like with Jesus forever. And this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you are forgiven for your sins. Yes, amen, absolutely. All of your sins blotted out and not remembered by God. Yes. And, as one of my teachers, Daryl Bach, would say, that Luke 3.16 is just as important as John 3.16, where it says, and one is coming to baptize in the Holy Spirit. When it means baptize in the Holy Spirit, it means that you and life and I have a life that's with God through the Holy Spirit now. Now, you... You know, Romans is going to tell us, Romans 8 is going to tell us, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. This is, to use the big word, this is eschatological. This is inauguration of our life with Jesus forever. When he wipes those tears from those eyes, when, when, <laughs> when you don't get to the butt, when, he, when you're not coughing all the time because there's not sickness and there's not death. I brought it back around. <clears throat> and so what I, mean, what I mean by end times and I mean eschatology, I mean as broadly as possible. I mean that God had a plan from Genesis 2 to undo sin, to undo death, and to put the world back the way it's supposed to be. And from there to the cross, God was bringing about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who's going to come, who's going to set up his kingdom on earth. Jesus inaugurates that kingdom, forgives us for our sins, and gives us a life and a share in that age that is to come. You ever get curious why it says these are the last days? And you look at it and you say, well, I'm glad that Peter said that God's not slow because these seem like some last days. These are some long last days. This is the time in between he comes ripping through the sky and puts everything back the way it's supposed to be in the time that he went up. He went up, he's coming back. He's coming back the way he went up. Here's what I mean. I, I don't think I'm alone in seeing it this way, and here's why. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. So I'll explain it, right? The dot, dot, dot. <clears throat> Uh, I'm in Acts, I'm in chapter 2, um, I will start at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, those are the other disciples, or pardon me, the other apostles, and well, they're apostles and disciples, but he's with the apostles, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, because they thought they were drunk, as you suppose, I guess he says that, since it is only the third hour of the day, it is morning time. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. We have some faithful people in our church who get up and study the minor prophets at 6 a.m. at Zoka Coffee. You are welcome to join them. I am not sure if they've done Joel yet or not, but I know they're doing some intense work. Uh, you are free to join them 6 a.m. If they haven't gone through Joel, they're going through stuff like Joel. Moving on, and he says this. And in the last days, that end time reality, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on the flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Uh, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, this is Pentecost, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall be to come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise the Lord. The reality is that you and I are taking part in the life of God through Jesus Christ in his Holy Spirit now. It's not the full meal deal. This was called inaugurated, or maybe you've heard the phrase, now and not yet, right? The reality is, uh, is that the dominion of darkness is passing away, and you and me, if you're a Christian, or I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, have been rescued from that dominion of darkness and delivered to the kingdom of light of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now that's coming to full fruition, but it's not there yet. Now, not yet. We live now in the present age, but you and I are partaking in things of the age to come. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. We have access to God through Jesus Christ and the power of His Spirit. You and I live, God administrates His life with people differently now than before the cross of Jesus Christ. He relates to human beings in a way differently now on this side of the Christ event, on this side of the resurrection. 
And you and I are living in that time and in that place. And here's what he says to do. So what he's encouraging us is to not live in the old world. Who wants the, who wants the Mad Max world, right? Give me the other one, the better one, the coming one. I can't use that reference as much because they made another movie. I haven't seen the other movie. just saw the old Australian movie when I was too little to see a movie like that. I'm not endorsing the movie. I say that because then you go see the movie. You're like, well, he was referencing the movie. That was horrible. And I get an email from you, and I have to say I'm sorry. I'm not saying go see Mad Max. That's what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that that vibe and feeling is representative of the dominion of darkness and the chaos and the old world and the world that's falling apart. And through Christ Jesus, we have this new world, this better world, this put-together world, this wipe every tear from every eye world, this world without sin and sickness and death, this world where you and I are fully on board and committed to Jesus 24-7 all the time because you and I are completely sanctified by Jesus. And so what does John say? And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Live in that forthcoming life. Live abiding in God because you're going to abide forever. Well, how do I do that? It feels complicated. That feels complex. What does he say? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now here's the 10,000 million billion dollar question. How in the world do I know what the will of God is? I asked, I wanted a dream or something. He didn't tell me what to do. I'm trying to pray between one school or another school, one job, another's job, one city, another city, one thing, another thing. And I don't know. Because he didn't say. Friends, we have a tendency. I'm not saying he doesn't say. I'm not saying he doesn't speak and that he doesn't speak through those ways. Don't get me wrong. We have a tendency to bypass what he's given us to show us his will towards these other things. How do I know the will of God? God has given you, in 2015, unparalleled and unprecedented access to his word. There are people busy translating this book into every language on the planet. We're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. There are people who are going where people can't read and teaching them to read so they can read the book. How do I know the will of God? He's put it in your hands. Now, this book might not tell you which city to live in, what job to take, what school to go to. It's not a wheel of fortune. Should I marry this dude or not marry this dude? Well, John 3.14 says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to Judean countryside. Well, he's a city guy, so... And that was random. I didn't pick that one. I'm just making it up as I go along. Oh, he's an urbanite, and so maybe I should find a country boy. Well, should I take the job, or should I keep the one I got? Well, hear, O heavens, says Isaiah, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, have I written? No, that's not right. And I'm not even saying he doesn't speak that way, by the way. Sometimes there's just you open the right passage at the right time, and he speaks. So I don't even want to denigrate that. But what I'm saying is that when he says, do the will of God, what Jesus commands us to do is to love God and love your neighbor. To share the truth of who he is. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. I know what you're supposed to do with your life. Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go make some disciples. Where? Maybe here. Maybe somewhere else. Talk to God about it. I'm sure he'll help you. Talk to others about it. They will help you. Talk to the church. See what doors are being opened. But first and foremost, I know if you say, well, I don't really think I'm supposed to make disciples because I'm not really into spiritual formation and discipleship is not really my thing. It's all our thing. Well, I don't really like people. I don't really want another one, another one, another. It's in here. I don't really like, uh, I like poor people but not rich people. I don't want to help rich people. Well, love your neighbor. Vice versa, you can swip it around, whatever. Swip it around, swap it around. Do justice, love people, share the gospel, 
Live to be sanctified. Love God and not the world. Live for His glory and for His namesake. Honestly, if you set your life first and foremost that the point of my life is to make the name of Jesus famous, the point of my life is to glorify God with absolutely everything I've got. The point of my life is to love God and to love people. The point of my life is to make disciples. The point of my life is to share the gospel with my children, Deuteronomy 6. The point of my life, and you just go down the list, and honestly, if you spend your life being obsessed with the things, the good things, and responding to the good things he's given you to do, many of these other things become trivial. And honestly, I think if you're doing the things that he's given us to do that he's not hid from you, these other things become more obvious. Sometimes you do have a hard decision. God, what would glorify you more? What would bring you more glory? What would draw me closer to you? And sometimes you have to pray and ask and act. And say, I think this is the will of God. But you also want to be careful not to baptize the things that you do and just say, well, God told me to do it. It's the will of God. Well, if the Bible doesn't say to do it, I tell you he didn't. If you think, I mean, this is great for discernment. If you think you've got something that God gave you to do that's against his word, I'll tell you what, God didn't tell you to do that thing. So you got a big decision. You want to figure out what to do. Neither of your options are sinful. You've prayed about it. You've asked. He's given you a new heart, age to come. He's given you his Holy Spirit. Pray, ask, seek. Put one foot in front of the other and do. Right? But I think what John has mostly in mind here is doing these things, wherever you are, glorifying God with everything you've got, doing everything unto the Lord, making disciples, loving people, loving God, knowing his word. If you give your life to the things he's given you to do, that is all that matters. And whatever choices you make beyond that, there are things that you're going to make Decisions, you might even say, that was not the wisest decision I could have made. But I was seeking to glorify God in absolutely everything I had. And you can lean on his promises. God works out for good for the people he loves, all things. Because here's the reality, friends. The main thing that you've been given to do is to love Jesus. Love Jesus. That's the point of your life. Love Jesus. Live in the wake of his gospel. So how do I know his will? How do I do this thing that's going to abide forever? Know God's word and etch the truth of the gospel on every ounce of your life. And do everything you can to live in the wake of the reality that you've been forgiven for all your sins and given life in Christ Jesus. And you're free. Don't turn to sin. Turn to God. Turn to Christ. Live for him. And the reality is, as even we see in 1 Corinthians, the, the, the point. The things that are not of him won't last, but the thing of loving him will, period. The thing of loving him will, period. And so we're after Jesus, because that's what counts, and that's what remains. That's what abides. That's what abides forever. And what's amazing about that is this life that we have in Jesus, loving him, knowing him, and serving him, is afforded to us how? not from spiritual push-ups, not from the things you do, but ultimately, first and foremost, from what he has done on his cross and us then living in response to that. You have a life that remains forever because of the cross of Jesus Christ. When we don't believe that, we get after the stuff in the world, whether it's the stuff inside, the stuff my eyes see, or even just sitting on top of the grand dog pile of my life and saying, I've got enough grain, I'm going to build a barn. So what do we do? We do the work he's given us to do. We enjoy him, we love him, we serve him, and we respond to him. One of the ways we get to do that is doing what he told us to do. We're going to take communion now. We're going to remember what he did for us to make us right with him, now and in the age to come. When, when we take of this cup, this is a celebration of Jesus. This is a, <laughs> this is a celebration of his cross. We do this as Christians, this is for Christians alone, and, and, and as Christians, we consider our sin, we turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus, and we proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection as we dip the bread in the wine. We proclaim the truth that his body broken and blood shed for us, that we've been made right by God through Jesus, that we've been given this life to do the will of God through Jesus and only Jesus. 
And this is a celebration of the life now that is eternal and life coming. And so logistically what we have here is we have uh, gluten-free and, and regular bread, and we have wine, and we have juice, and we have a basket for the offering of the ministry. And so when you're ready, you come and partake of this by dipping the, the wafer or the bread in the juice or the wine, and we eat it, and we stand up and we sing. We stand up and sing as loved, forgiven, made right people who get to live with God now and forever. Friends, we have much to celebrate. We get to stand as the church and celebrate Jesus and glorify him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray to glorify you with my life and this church would be a church that's about your glory. Help us to do your will of loving you and knowing you and proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of your son with every part of our life. Help us to understand that doing your will is in response to your gospel. We don't do your will so that you will love us. We do your will because you have loved us. We don't do your will to earn something from you. We do your will because you've made us right through your Son, Jesus Christ. We live as people seeking to take off the old man and putting off the new because we've been cleansed and made new. We live as people looking forward to the full throttle age to come because we know what you have done and are doing. You've given us a foretaste of the restoration which we know you are working. And help us to live as your people for your glory, enjoying you and proclaiming you until you return. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.